I invite you to kneel with me before we open God's word together. God, we thank you that we can come into this place this morning and worship you. God, we thank you that you truly are our glory. You are the one who lifts us up out of the miry pit. God, I thank you that we are here today, not by accident, but by divine appointment. We thank you, God, that you know everything, everything that's going on in our lives right now. You know. And God, we want to hear from you today. God, we need your help. We need your wisdom. We need your grace. We need your mercy. Because we want to honor you. Thank you for this time, God. Speak to us, we ask, we pray, as we open your word together, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was in ninth grade, just a freshman, I tried out for our basketball team. At that time, our family was living in Columbia, South Carolina, and the school I went to was called Dent Junior High School. Dent, the Fighting Trojans. And Dent was a, an appropriate name for that particular public school because it had many, many, many dents in it. It was really old, it was dilapidated, it was basically uh, just a falling down into pieces, not to mention the uh, lack of education that I received at that particular school. But all that being said, it's true, you can fact check me on that later, is uh, I made the basketball team, so it's, which is great. I played basketball all the time, and I practiced. I went to basketball camp. Uh, my dad played with my brother Ed and I out in the backyard all the time. And so we loved, we ate, we would eat, breathe, and sleep basketball. That's, that's who we were. So I made the team. I was so happy to make the team. But uh, as things played out in that particular squad, I realized that I was uh, not going to start. I was not going to get a lot of playing time. As a matter of fact, I was the fourth string point guard. Fourth string. The starting point guard was a guy by the name of Ivan Rodan. The second string guard was Bobby Green. The third string guard was Duncan Shera. I was the fourth string guard, which meant not only was I not gonna play much, I was not gonna play at all. So I was the Rodney Dangerfield, that particular team. I got no respect. I can remember that when we would go and get, we would get uniforms, especially for our home games, they had two jerseys for me. One was number 40, number 40. Number 40 is not a number for a point guard, okay? It's just not. And the jersey was so big on me. I was the same height then, and I weighed about 120 pounds, okay? So before I started doing steroids. And so... I had, I had that, you know, the, the, the basketball jerseys are a tank top, and literally the hole in the jersey was so big, you could see my ribs all the way down to my waistline. I'm not joking. That was number 40. So when number 40 was given to someone else, they would give me number 10, which is an upgrade because number 10 is a number for a guard position. But the problem with the number 10 jersey was it had a big blue ink stain on the left side. Okay? So... I would go to the practices. Our coach was Coach Sanders, and I would dedicate myself. I would run. I would do the drills. I knew the plays. But when it came to game time, I didn't get in the game. I would go and warm up and sit at the end of the bench. 
and watch the games. Now you have to realize uh, the, the, the division I was in. It, we're not talking about Second Baptist School and St. John's and Kincaid and Audie, okay? We're talking about Dreer, AC Floor, Eau Claire. I mean, these people produce, these schools produce in, NBA players, Hall of Famers, okay? That's the competition that I was up against. And the reason I, I, I played four-string guard and the reason I sat the bench was because I wasn't good enough, okay? That's why I was, it's the coach's fault. No, I wasn't good enough. That's why I was on the bench. But I used to sitting on the bench, game after game. All the way through the season, the middle of the season, I'm there sitting on the end of the bench. Kind of feel, in a sense, left out, forgotten. Perhaps, if you want to go psychological there, a little bit rejected. But, but we've all been there, haven't we? You know, maybe, you're, maybe you're there right now. You kind of feel like in life you're sitting on the end of the bench. You're not really in the game. You're not really doing what you want to be doing. Plan A is <laughs> not really happening now. And you're wondering, well, what do I need to do next? How do I get back in the game? That's what we're going to talk about this morning. Now, as you know, the last several Sundays, we've been talking about discovering the power of God, right? We've talked about we can, we can discover the power of God in many ways. But one of the ways we discover the power of God is through the power of praise, both corporate praise and personal praise on a daily basis. And when you read existentialist philosophy, a lot of those philosophers talk about the whole idea of being and becoming, being and becoming. And we say every week that we want to become a certain type of people. We want to become people who praise God. So I've asked and the question, who are we? And we've responded together. We are the people who praise God. And we responded together, we are the people who praise God. Also, last week we looked at one of the ma major driving forces in our life is a search for meaning and purpose. So I said, not only are we the people who praise God, but we are the people who live out his purpose. Let's say that together. We are the people who live out his purpose. How do we live out his purpose? Glad you asked the question. Perhaps you missed last week. What happens is this, is we've got to engage in these three circles or ovals, if you would. We've got to get in touch with design, how God has made us, how he wired us, our intelligence, our physicality, our personality. Are you a choleric, a melancholy, a one wing four, a four wing seven, or whatever you are? We need to be in touch with how we are made, how we're made, our design. Also, we need to get in touch with our desires. What do we want? What do we like to do? Do we want to lead? Do we want to create? Do we want to manage? Do we want to protect? Do we want to serve? What is it that we want to do? Okay, desire. This is all last week, all review. 
And of course, at the top of the circle here is devotion. All this is contingent and flows out of our devotion, our personal praise, corporate praise, connection to the one who made us and knows, knows us, and that's God himself. So we have, when we have our devotion, our desire, and our, I mean, our design, our desire, when they're in sync, when they're running together, oh, check out this magical Venn diagram, then we are dialed in, right? We're, we're dialed in to God's purposes and plans for our life. And we're moving forward because we wanna to get to this point where one day when we die, we'll hear the words from God, well done. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Way to go, way to maximize your life, your gifts, your talents before me. Well done, well done. That's the goal. So all we gotta do, Design, desire, devotion, boom, we're dialed in and everything's just great and it's a straight line all the way to glory, right? No, it's not. <laughs> That's not what happens. Something happens in the in-between time. What happens in the in-between time? Open up our passage today in the Word of God in Acts chapter number 16. Acts 16, verse 22, let me give you a brief context. Paul and Silas are planting churches in a new area. They're doing some groundbreaking work in a town called Philippi in Macedonia. They're there, things are going great, but all of a sudden their religion gets involved with the marketplace. And what they were doing started to interfere with this, with this particular small business ability to make money. Religion's great, God's great, but when you start stopping my ability to make money, things get funny, things get out of hand. So they, 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 they just stirred up a lot of trouble for Paul and Silas on Twitter and the internet and all that, and things are blowing up, they're going crazy. So that's the context of what's happening right here, and we'll see what happens to so Paul, because Paul, I man, I love Paul. He's one of the guys that I, I follow a mentor that I have. I talked about Kierkegaard, now he's one of my mentors in my life, though he passed away. A biblical mentor of mine, I think would be Paul. If anybody was dialed in to the purposes of God in his life, it would be Paul. So he's dialed in, but something happens. Look at verse 16, 22. It said, the crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas. And the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. The crowd, the mob. <laughs> Never get involved in a mob or a crowd. I don't care if you're in Portland, Minneapolis, or Washington, D.C. A mob is a mob is a mob. It has a mind of its own, and the mindset of a mob is cray, 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 crazy town. Stay away from them. So this mob, no surprise, no surprise, turns against Paul and Silas. They're stripped, they're beaten with the rods, and they have been severely flogged. They're thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. In other words, the Roman jailer here in Philippi knew 
that if he let any prisoners escape, he would be executed. He would be executed. So when he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell, also known as the shoe or ad seg, if you know prison lingo. And they fastened their feet in the stocks. So here's Paul and Silas doing God's will, living out their purposes, God's purpose for their life. They're devoted, they're in touch with their design, their desires, they're totally dialed in. But they have what I call an L. A-E. An LAE is a life-altering event. A life-altering event. Wham. Think about the old Batman show I watched when I was a little boy. Wham, pow, smack, right? All of a sudden, their life has been changed. All of a sudden, they're placed into the inner cell. All of a sudden, they're looking down at their body and they can see their bones because they're bleeding where they've been whipped and flogged and they are shackled up where they cannot move. They're immobile. What is gonna happen to Paul and Silas? Will they die and rot in that cell in Philippi? Die of infection? Rot away in prison? What's gonna happen to them? They're having a life-altering event. Now, most of us will not have that kind of life-altering event. Chances are you're probably not going to get thrown in prison tomorrow. Most of us here. But most of us, if you live long enough, have had a life-altering event. The report comes back that it is cancer. You get the phone call and the person other than the line says, there's been an accident. A note's left on the kitchen counter that says I'm gone and I'm never coming back. The boss calls you in at Friday at four o'clock and says we're downsizing. Another notice, another notice, a final notice from the bank. We've all had life-altering events. And what does that do? It puts us down here. Boom. And now... It looks like we're gonna to have to take a detour. We're gonna to have to go through the neighborhoods, down the back streets, run into the dead ends, and poke through the school zones of life to make our way out. 
tough thing is when we have a detour, when we have an LAE, a life-altering event, is some people want to deny the detour and act like it's not happening or not believe that it's really a detour and not really embrace the reality of what's going on. You have to do that. What if you're just cruising along, riding along, and you see this detour sign, and you go, oh, I'm going to ignore the detour sign. Boom, you can drive right off the cliff. The same thing happens in life. You've got to deal with the detour and where you are on this detour. So Paul and Silas are in the detour. Maybe you are in a detour in your life or someone you love is in the detour phase of the journey. What do we do? It's tempting to quit. It's tempting to numb yourself out to the realities of life and said, hey, I tried God, I tried his way, I tried to be dialed in, but this detour is just too overwhelming, it's too debilitating, it's too much, I'm just gonna bail, I'm just gonna quit. Or, another option is to start moving forward, that we may go back down, we may go back up as we're on this detour. We may go around, but we keep on going. And this line It's called perseverance. We choose to persevere. We choose to persist. Regardless of the pushback, regardless of the opposition, regardless of the disappointment, regardless of the fear and anxiety that's coursing through our body, we choose to persevere. We persevere. We move forward because that is how God has made and designed us. That's his will for our life. We know in Romans 5 that Paul will write, it is suffering that produces perseverance. We know that James writes in James chapter one that when we go through trials that we must persevere because it's in perseverance that God makes us stronger and more whole and more capable to face the realities of life. So we persevere. We have to persevere. So not only are we the people who praise God, not only are we the people who live out his purpose, we are the people who persevere. Who are we? Let's say it together. We are the people who persevere. We are the people who persevere. That is who we are and that is who by God's grace and by his spirit we desire to become. Growth comes when we're under pressure. Growth comes when 
either by choice or by the circumstances, we're pushed to our limits and we choose to persevere. We choose to trust God in that moment. And that strengthens us. As you know, if you work out and you exercise, when you lift weights, it actually breaks down your muscles. You break down your muscles in order to build your muscles. Someone taught me that in college years ago, right? No weights, no dates, okay? No curls, no girls. That's just the way it is. Just the way it is. So you have to persevere. You have to push yourself. Now, how do we do that practically? Practically, what are the things that we have to do to persevere? There are three actions that we must take, three actions we must take to persevere, and we'll talk about that next Sunday, so don't miss it. I like what Robert Louis Stevenson said. He said, saints are sinners who kept on going. Saints are simply sinners who kept on going. Let's see what Paul and Silas will do. Will they bail? Will they quit? Will they die of infection in this prison situation? What will happen? What do they do? How do they persevere? Look at Acts 16, 25. It says about midnight, midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and other prisoners were listening to them. I bet they were. These two scouts are in the inner, inner prison. They're chained up. They have shackles on their ankles. It's midnight, and these cats are having a praise break. What is going on with Paul and Silas? These other prisoners are thinking. Look what happens. Suddenly there was a violent earthquake, and the foundations of the prison were shaken, and all at once the prison doors flew open, and everybody's chains in the prison became loose. What do they do? Paul and Silas. Their default was not to cry out, God, why? Why me? No, their default was God. What now? What now? And about midnight in that dark, cold prison, what did they do? What did they rely on to persevere? Did they look at their design, their call? Probably not. Their desire? No. What did they do? What they did? They doubled down on devotion. They doubled down on devotion. How did they persevere? Devotion, devotion, devotion. That was default. Their default wasn't to whine. Their default wasn't to complain. Their default was, okay, here we are in this detour. Here we are locked down. I don't know if we'll ever get out, but you know what? I'm gonna praise God anyway. I'm gonna be thankful to him. I'm gonna praise him. I'm gonna sing a hymn to him. I'm sure it was from the Psalms. I'm gonna sing a Psalm unto God. I'm gonna pray. That's what he did. That's what Paul and Silas did. They doubled down on devotion. And devotion is what gets you through the detours of life. Devotion is what allows you to survive. 
Devotion is what allows you to connect with God on another level, on a deeper level, as you're trying to figure out what's going on in this so-called detour of life. It's devotion. Devotion fuels perseverance. Devotion doesn't fail. You need to circle back to devotion. You need to double down on devotion. Absolutely. Devotion. Keeping our connection with God strong. As we're fighting our way through the detour, as we're trying to figure out how to make it down this brand new path, as we're trying to persevere, we double down on our devotion, our worship, our praise to God. That's what they did. Heck, I don't know if it caused the earthquake or not, but there was an earthquake and it looked like they had the opportunity to be free and walk out of the prison. But they didn't. They didn't. I'll tell you why in a second. Devotion. And, and here's the interesting thing about devotion, and there are many people here that could testify to that today, stand up here and say, hey, this is what happened to me. It's right. You have to double down devotion. But when you start to place yourself in that position of personal praise and corporate praise to God, and you double down in devotion, like Paul and Silas did, what happens is you realize it's really not about your devotion. It's not about your devotion to God, but it's God's devotion to you that's gonna get you through, okay? It's God's devotion to you that's gonna get you through. He who began a good work in you, a good thing in you, will complete it until the day of Christ. He called you, he chose you, he adopted you into his family, he picked you to make the team, and maybe you're still on the bench, but that's okay, you're on the team, and he's with you, and he still has a plan for you, and he still wants to use your design and your desire as you dial in and double down on this devotion in your life. It's gonna allow you to persevere so you will hear those words, well done, well done, well done, when you get to the end of your journey. Because what the wily veterans of life and God know, that sometimes what looks like a detour is actually your path. Sometimes what looks like a detour is actually your path. The cross, it's a big, that's the biggest detour of all time. This Messiah deal, this revolution deal, it is over. It's been literally nailed to the cross. It's finished, it's done, he's dead. What a detour. It wasn't a detour, it was God's divine plan. He came out of the grave on the third day to prove it. 
evidentially, empirically, appeared to people. I'm alive. My cross had meaning. It wasn't a detour. It was God's plan to show you that there's still hope for this world. There's still hope for your life. Paul and Silas, what happened? Midnight, boom, they double down. Praise, devotion, earthquake, chains fall off. The Philippian jailer is over. He sees this happening. He takes his big Roman sword out. He's about to fall on the sword, and Paul yells out, hey, don't do it. Don't take your own life. We are all still here. And the Philippian jailer, this commanding officer, probably a former military guy, said, you've got to be kidding me. What do I need to do to get what you have? What do I need to do to be saved? And Paul said, believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved, you and your whole household. So they came in and released Paul and Silas. He went to the Philippian jailer's home. They came to know Christ. His family came to know Christ. They were baptized. Do you know what happened for the very first time? Because of the conversion of this family, the Philippian jailer and another businesswoman by the name of Lydia, the gospel was spread to Europe for the very first time. What seemed like a detour in the prison was actually a path that God was going to use to open Europe to the gospel. We persevere. We persevere. We move forward in life. We move forward in this detour by doubling down on devotion and trusting God that this detour may actually become a path. A path. Now, let's go back to Dent Junior High and the 122-pound four-string guard was zits on his face and a blue ink stain on his jersey. So it's about midway in the season. I'm now the third-string point guard. Because I worked hard? No, because Duncan, the third-string point guard, quit. <laughs> Ivan turned his ankle, our starting point guard, okay? So that meant that Bobby Green was going to start. And now I am, I can't even do the math here. I guess I'm the second string point guard at this point. But I'm not going to play. So we're playing Dreer. Funny, isn't it? Dent plays Dreer. And Dreer was a phenomenal basketball high school. Okay, I mean, Alex English, who's a Hall of Famer, played at Dreer. So we're playing Dreer home game. I'm at the end of the bench. It's the second quarter. And I, I, I think I hear Coach Sanders says, Young, get in the game. Young, get in the game. All right. So I, you know, get my, take my 120-pound bones, check into the game, start playing. I'm on defense. A guy starts coming for me. I just take a charge. When you take a charge in basketball, you let someone hit you. So this guy just runs into me. I fall down. Literally, I remember sliding down the dirty, dusty, dent junior high wooden floor, out of bounds, boom. I get to the free throw line later. I was good at shooting free throws. I made maybe two, maybe four points, all free throws. The reason I made those shots is because they were free throws. No one was guarding me. <laughs> I made them, okay? 
I practiced my free throws. So well, it was great. I got to play for about two minutes and 32 seconds. That's all I'd play the whole entire year. So we go into halftime. He gives us a halftime, you know, pep talk and all that. Let's go out there and get him. And as we're walking out of the locker room there, Coach Sanders turned to me, says, hey, Young, I want you to start the second half. I want you to get back in the game. It's all right. So I played the second half. I went on and played in, in, in many games toward the end of the season. I actually started in some games. Crazy. Now, I didn't become like a hero and all district and the leading scorer. No, but when the time was right, my coach said, hey, we can use you. Hey, get back in the game. Get back in the game. I see that all, all the way throughout life, all the way throughout Scripture. Peter denied Christ three times. He thought it's over. Peter had quit. Even after the resurrection, he went back to fishing. But Jesus met him and said, Peter, get back in the game. Samson thought it was all over. Man, he was at once dialed in to God's purposes, man. His devotion, desire, design. But he made some horrible decisions, got messed up with the wrong woman at the wrong time, ended up in prison. He thought it was over. He said, I'm going to quit. He was now blind. But God said to Samson, Samson, get back in the game. I have something for you to do. And he pushed those walls off and destroyed the Philistines. Get back in the game, Samson. John Mark, he's on a missionary journey with Barnabas and Paul. He starts whining and complaining. He gets homesick. He goes, I want to go home. And Paul says, well, go home then. I don't have any use for you. Paul wasn't much on compassion. But John Mark now is on some detour in life. We don't know where he is, but we know that Paul, toward the end of his life, he finds himself in prison again. And he says, hey, call John Mark for me. Have him come visit me because he's useful to me. It's like God was saying to Mark, hey, Mark, get back in the game. You may have a best-selling book in you. I don't know. Get back in the game. Perhaps it's God's word to you today. He's saying to you, hey, get back into the game. This detour may not last forever, but you can get back in the game because I have something for you to do.